Muhammad is remembered in a multitude of ways, by both Muslims and non-Muslims. And through each retelling, we learn a great deal, not only about Muhammad, but about the social milieu of the authors. In The Lives of Muhammad, published with Harvard University Press in 2014, Kisha Ali explores how several central components of the Muhammad biographical narrative are reframed by various authors within modern accounts. We find that biographers' notions of historicity changed over time, emphasis on the miraculous and supernatural events in Muhammad's life are interpreted differently, and Muhammad's network of relationships, including successors, companions, and family members, gain wider interest during this period. We also find that from the 19th century onwards, Muhammad is often framed within the history of great men, alongside figures like Jesus, Buddha, or Plato. Descriptions of Muhammad's life cross a range of genres, such as hagiographical, polemical, political, or seeking to facilitate interreligious dialogue. In our conversation, we just begin to scratch the surface of this rich book, including topics such as Ibn Ishaq, sexual ethics, revisionism, Muhammad's first wife Khadija and young wife Aisha, Orientalist William Muir, polygamy, attempts to counter perceived Western misinterpretations, marital ideals, and contemporary anti-Muslim animus. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson. Thanks again for listening to New Books and Islamic Studies. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Keisha Ali. Welcome, Keisha Ali. Thanks for talking to us here at New Books and Islamic Studies. And thanks for writing a wonderful book, The Lives of Muhammad, published with Harvard University Press just last year. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, this is a really excellent book, and while the title might make listeners think it's just going to be focused on this singular figure, you you really use this as an examination of both the audiences, of how people think about Muhammad, um, the people in Muhammad's life, um, his social networks, and it's really a fascinating book, so I I hope people will pick it up. Before we get into the content, though, um, it is our tradition here at New Books in Islamic Studies to find out a little bit about how you got interested in the study of Islam. So could you tell us a little bit about your, your background, perhaps influential mentors or moments in your career that uh, have guided your scholarship? It's a great question, and my answer is a little bit meandering. Um, As a high school student, I was selected to spend a month um, in between high school and college, actually, in Tunisia with the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. And I was very interested, uh, you know, learned how to count to 10 in Arabic, that kind of thing, Um, and then started college in the fall at Stanford, which at the time didn't have anyone on the faculty uh, teaching about Islam regularly. So I took some Middle East history classes with Joel Bainan, uh, took a an intro to Islam class with the local rabbi who was pinch hitting as an adjunct. Uh, But mostly as an undergraduate, I worked on Latin America. I had lived in Brazil and that ended up being my primary area of interest. Um, Although my undergraduate thesis project um, was about women's mobilization in a Brazilian shantytown and looked extensively at religion there at liberation theology, the role of a group of missionary sisters. I didn't really think of myself as studying religion. I thought of myself as studying Latin America. When I went to graduate school, uh, I went to graduate school to do Latin American history. I was going to write about 20th century Brazil. I went to Duke University. And 
in that history program, you did an outside minor. And I thought, well, maybe I'll make my outside minor be in religion. I'll take some classes on Islam. And so I did that. And then I took more classes. And then I thought, wow, I'm getting close to taking comprehensive exams. I was two classes away from comprehensive exams. And I thought, do I really want to write a dissertation in Latin American history? Or do I really want to switch things up? And so I ended up doing two more years of coursework in Islamic studies in the graduate program of religion at Duke University. And that set things on, on this particular path. Now, you're a very prolific author, and your scholarship ranges a wide set of topics. Can you talk a little bit about how this project began to emerge as a book and, and how it relates to your larger research trajectory? I've been mostly focused on Islamic law as a genre, fiqh, um, but I've also always been interested in questions of gender and sexuality. And of course, when one is interested in questions of gender and sexuality, or when one is interested in questions of law and legal precedent and legal thought, the Prophet's example, the Prophet's normative sunnah, comes up early on and resurfaces continually. And so while researching my dissertation, which was about 9th and 10th century Islamic law of marriage and divorce, um, of course, I kept coming across references to the Prophet's behavior, uh, the Prophet's statements on topics related to marriage, his own marriages and other things. Um, and I was really interested in the ways in which he was both exemplary and exceptional. How was it that the jurists were dealing with this? And a little bit, how did that compare and contrast to how contemporary Muslims were talking about his life, his marriages, his example. And about 10 years ago, I wrote a short essay, which ended up published in the Pakistani Journal of Islamic Studies called A Beautiful Example. And it was precisely about contemporary debates about the Prophet's marriages and how our thinking about those topics might be enriched by considering the early legal tradition. Uh, and that pattern of putting the early tradition, the classical tradition, into conversation with contemporary thinkers from a variety of perspectives is something that I have pursued in quite a number of my projects. It's a central theme of sexual ethics and Islam. Uh, it figures less in marriage and slavery, which really is about the 8th to 10th century period. I went back you know, another century when I developed a book from the dissertation. But on the question of the Prophet Sunnah in particular, it was really the way the jurists thought about it that I thought I was mostly interested in. Um, and I thought at that time that a book about the legal treatment of Muhammad's marriages might be useful, interesting, something I would do. And then, of course, it took me much, much longer than I expected to write the other things that I was writing. And along the way, I found myself writing a biography of Imam Shafi'i, who is a 9th century Muslim jurist uh, and legal theorist for One World's Makers of Muslim History series. 
And in the process of doing the research and writing for that book, I read a fair amount about the genre of biography and how that has changed in different times and different places over the centuries. And that got me thinking about the way that biography has been a tremendously important genre for the construction of ideas about who Muhammad was, uh, how his life matters. And so by the time I finally got back to this project about the prophet and about his marriages, uh, it had really morphed into a project about biography. And although I had originally planned to do a book that, that really started from the early period, started from the earliest extant biographies and came up to the present day, um, Tarif Khalidi scooped me, right, with a wonderful book called, the, I believe it's Images of Muhammad, where he looks predominantly at the Muslim biographical traditions, Sunni and Shi'i, over the centuries, and gives a kind of overview of a series of moments and trends. And he even stole my opening gambit. I was going to talk about, you know, Samuel Johnson and biography. And I pick <laughs> up this book as, as I'm sort of getting back to this project. And there it is. So I ended up not doing that. Um, but really, where I start with this book, um, there's some history, there's some background. But, but the core of the book is really where Khalidi is ending, um, which is this modern period in which biographies of Muhammad by Westerners and the assumptions about where you get the valid information for a biography uh, comes to be taken up and contested, but also incorporated by Muslims thinking about who Muhammad is and what does it mean to be Muslim in this day and age and what does it mean to be a prophet and what does it mean to be a great man and all of these things. And that became really the starting point for this book. To get listeners up to speed, can you provide us a, just a general outline, and you, you do this in the book as well, of, of Muhammad's life as it's found in both Western accounts and Muslim retellings and even places like Wikipedia? Yeah, um, it's actually astonishing how many key points there are in these kinds of capsule biographies. Um, the basic skeleton with a handful of assorted selected details um, really is very um, very much shared across uh, a, a number of ways of writing about Muhammad that you wouldn't expect necessarily to have this in common. Um, and I'll preface this by saying, of course, this is not Muhammad's life story. The people interested in the historical Muhammad from the perspective of history from the perspective of late antique studies and so forth are doing something very different. But in terms of what you're going to get, if you go to a basic encyclopedia article, if you go to a Western religions textbook, if you go to Wikipedia, it's going to sound something like this. Um, Muhammad was born in Mecca in 570 to a father from a poor but noble background. His father died while Muhammad was still in his mother's womb she died when he was a young boy. He was taken in by his grandfather and then by his paternal uncle, who raised him with his own sons. He grew to young manhood as a member of the noble Quraysh tribe, but was relatively impoverished. And 
though he gained a reputation for being trustworthy, um, he didn't have a lot of access to resources. So when the wealthy widow Khadija offered him employment on a caravan to Syria, he accepted and he performed wonderfully well. Uh, and she was very impressed with him. When he returned, she proposed and he accepted marriage. She was 40 and he was 25. And this is a key detail that shows up um, in many, many of the accounts. They lived together for many years. She bore him children, although their son or sons died in infancy. Uh, four daughters survived for some years. And then uh, in this fallow period of his life, he began meditating in a cave on the outskirts of Mecca. When he was 40, again, you have to pay attention to the symbolism of the number here, he had an experience during one such retreat. And what Muslims report about this is that the angel Gabriel visited him and ordered him to recite what became the first verses of the Quran. Of course, non-Muslims don't believe that the angel came and visited him and passed along this, but but nonetheless, uh, some believe he had some kind of experience. Others believe that it's during this period that he began to compose what became the Quran. Um, in, in these standard accounts, um, other Historical studies have begun to say, well, we have to talk about the history of the Quran in a more complicated way. But that seldom figures into biographical accounts of Muhammad's life. So he has this experience in the cave and he comes back down the mountain and he talks to Khadija and she comforts him and reassures him and maybe tries to get confirmation uh, for him from one of her cousins who's a Christian that he's not going mad and then Muhammad begins to spread the message uh, and it is rejected according to the dominant narrative by the Meccan elite because he's an upstart and he's preaching things that would on the one hand threaten the pilgrimage trade from which they made a great deal of their money uh, and people coming to the Kaaba, which has all of these idols, right? There's this polytheistic context that figures in these narratives. Uh, and on the other hand, he's also threatening the social structure by preaching an egalitarian tradition in which what matters ultimately about a person is not status, lineage, wealth, but rather a person's piety. He's proposing a new community of believers based on a shared faith as opposed to based on tribe. Eventually, um, this hostility becomes persecution. Muhammad's uncle dies, Khadija dies, and he flees with some of his followers to Medina, an oasis city some distance from Mecca. And during what is the what ended up being um, the last period of his life, the last 10 years of his life. Uh, he lives in Medina as both prophet of God and also ruler of a community, um, a community that included Jewish tribes, uh, a community that was engaged with the Meccans in a series of back and forth kinds of raids until in 632 years before he died, he uh at the head of the Muslims, reconquers Mecca uh, nearly bloodlessly, and Islam becomes the religion there. The Kaaba is cleansed of idols and so on and so forth. So this capsule story of his life, of course, becomes the basis for a lot of 
elaborations. So devotional Muslim biographies will say a lot more about the appearance of the angel. Uh, they may also add in lots of miracles that come at various points of uh, time. But increasingly, what Muslim and Western biographies have in common is really an interest in um, the things Muhammad did as a leader. Um, so what were his ethical pronouncements, but also how did he negotiate with allies? How did he uh, negotiate with enemies? What were his diplomatic skills? So things that really put stress on the events of his life, as opposed to the inner qualities of his character that, that simply emanated from him. Now, while the, the majority of the book is looking at a more modern period, you do begin thinking about these early sources. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what types of evidence we have for Muhammad's life, um, why people might be skeptical of these sources, what do non-Muslim sources say from uh, this early period, how are uh, certain categories being used, and you kind of were hinting at that as you were telling us the narrative. Um, can, can you help us think about the, the early period here? Yeah, so there are three main early Muslim sources um, from which biographers tend to build. Um, Ibn Ishaq in the recension of Ibn Hisham um, postdates the life of Muhammad by 100, 200 years, right? Now, of course, some will argue that the material is earlier and it's preserved and, and it reflects a kind of continuous oral tradition. But it's certainly the case that this biographer is interested in different kinds of things than the early Muslims the time of Muhammad would have been interested in. Uh, there's also Al-Waqidi, uh, whose book of campaigns has now been translated into English. Um, there's there's a long uh, Routledge edition of the book. And it's really about Muhammad's military campaigns and battles, and it's filled with lists of uh, soldiers, it's filled with lists of horses, it's filled with uh, lists of tribute, it's, it's a, you know, sort of where did people camp, it's, it's a lot of information, um, but not really a biography in the sense that we might think of that way. Um, you know, another book that ends up becoming um, quite important is the history of Tabari, um, who of course wrote you know, starting kind of back with the, the creation of the world up through, you know, all of the prophets up through Muhammad's lifetime and up to his own contemporary period, the volumes that he put together about Muhammad's life became really important core sources for later historians. And there's a lot to be said about the particular kinds of uh, issues that preoccupied Tabari. So one thing one can say about all of these early Muslim sources, apart from the question of their distance in time from the life of Muhammad, uh, is that they're all written by, compiled by people and transmitted by people who have a particular kind of stake in ongoing contests about what should the organization of the Muslim community look like? Who are its legitimate rulers? How should they rule? Uh, And so all of these things um, have a connection to 
how the people around Muhammad and the events of Muhammad's lifetime are portrayed. And so if one talks about Ali in a particular kind of way, if one presents a particular kind of narrative of Muhammad's death, in which Ali is the person who is with him at his deathbed, that gives a very different resonance than what has become the default Sunni account that one finds repeated without qualification in virtually all contemporary Western biographies, which is, of course, Muhammad dying with his head in Aisha's lap. Um, And, of course, the the conflict about leadership of the Muslim community um, involved a very significant battle with Aisha staked on one side and Ali staked on the other. And so a biography that presents a particular kind of account of Muhammad's death in at least subtle and sometimes in very obvious ways is going to have interpretive repercussions for thinking about um, how that happens now. As far as the question about what do the non-Muslim sources say, um, over the past five, ten years, there have been a number of publications that have looked again at the Syriac sources, for instance, um, and have tried to think about um, what can we know about Muhammad if we're not just looking at the Muslim sources. This is a question that Hagarism famously asked nearly 40 years ago, um, but what we're finding today, for instance, in um, Stephen Shoemaker's Death of the Prophet and the Beginning of Islam, or Fred Donner's uh, Muhammad and the Believers at the Dawn of Islam, I believe that's the correct title, um, is that we're starting not just to question the uh, existing narrative, but also to begin to piece together um, what seems to be a fairly compelling renewed interpretation about, for instance, the ecumenical nature of Muhammad's community of believers, which didn't have capital M Muslims in contrast to Christians and Jews, but rather Muslims as a broader category encompassing a variety of somewhat fluid religious categories. Um, Or Stephen Shoemaker's rethinking the question of did Muhammad die before or after the conquest of Jerusalem? At what point did capital I Islam become recast as a specifically Arabian religion? Now, none of these are settled questions yet, and there are a variety of people rethinking what we know, on what basis we know it, um, but, but these are very different questions uh, to what are biographies saying about Muhammad, not just Muslim biographies, but Western biographies. The remainder of the book, you primarily focus on the 19th and 20th century accounts, both of Muslim and non-Muslims. Um, can you tell us about some of these sources? Because th- th- there's really fascinating accounts that you're, you're covering here through various lenses. So William Muir's biography of Muhammad, of course, um, which is four volumes in the original edition, it's you know very much this kind of 19th century narrative history uh, that tries on the one hand to be literary in the way these things were, and on the other hand to be scholarly, um, 
you know, lots and lots of references, lots of attention to uh, early sources, quote, original sources. He was working with manuscripts that, that of these very early texts um, that hadn't to date really been the primary resources for Europeans thinking about Muhammad's biography. Muir's biography really changed the game. Uh, it became the standard against which other sorts of biographies were compared. Um, but it also really made it impossible to talk about Muhammad's life without raising these questions of historical fact. Now, what Muir thought was historical fact and, and what he judged a reliable versus an unreliable source were not the conclusions that everybody always came to. But it became so that one had to at least address those questions about what are the early sources, what's the reliability of this source, what, what's the facticity, um, and so that even people who, who didn't want to agree with him about which Muslim sources were trustworthy nonetheless had to make a case for why the sources they chose ought to be trustworthy. So Muir is representative of and also influential in this turn to fact rather than symbol in biographies of Muhammad. Now, there, there, many of these accounts, even by non-Muslims, are, are sympathetic in their view. Um, others are not. Um, and then we also have Muslims responding to these accounts. Um, what What's going on here in the, in the 19th century that there's this kind of increased focus on writing about Muhammad? I think there are a couple of things that together make this increased focus on Muhammad's life um, particularly compelling for authors of the period. Um, one, of course, is just the increase in print culture, in spread of books, of manuscripts, of periodicals, um, they're simply much more available for people to use as a basis for disputing with one another. And in India in particular, uh, and then in Egypt, um, one sees a very active culture of disputation, of missionary confrontation, um, Muslims and Christians, although Hindus were also significantly in the mix. The other thing that's going on is um, the consolidation of a set of new ideas about religion and about prophets and about books that makes the focus on Muhammad and the Quran absolutely central to any discussions about Islam. Uh, of course, Muhammad has always been important. Of course, the Quran has always been important. But this idea that if you're going to talk about a book, uh, if you're going to talk about a religion, you're going to talk about a particular bounded tradition that has a founder, that has scriptures, and then those are the things on which you focus when you evaluate the relative worth, the place in the civilizational hierarchy of this tradition. So you have Buddha and particular books. You have, in the case of Hinduism, right, you'll have 
the Vedas as particular kinds of scriptures. Um, you have, of course, Jesus and a focus on the Bible and the quest for the historical Jesus. So all of these things are going on in the mid-19th century. And if you talk about Muhammad and his religion, you find that there's almost certainly a parallel title for Buddha and his religion, right? Um, and so these things going on together are just part of larger trends. And Muhammad becomes, of course, because of the increased uh, conversations ongoing between Muslims and Christians, a place where that's going to happen. Another thing that you focus on in the book is uh, ways of framing, and particularly the way uh, authors were framing Muhammad's life, either in a religious, kind of spiritual figure type context versus uh, more of a social actor uh, mm-hmm. framing. Can you talk a little bit about why people were talking about Muhammad in terms of, of liberty and nation and, and other kind of contemporary terms and why they've perhaps left these more um, traditional categories behind? It's really a truism about biography that any biography reflects more of the biographer and the time in which it was written than it does the figure and and the time in which he or she lived that's being written about. And in the 19th century, people are thinking about men, and it it is men, males at this particular time, who do big, important things, Uh, not just heroes like Wellington uh, or Nelson, but Napoleon, who is a kind of anti-hero, certainly for British biographers who are very much at the forefront of writing and thinking about Muhammad. Um, These are men whose lives reshape the map, quite literally, of Europe at the time. And so thinking about men who accomplish particular kinds of things becomes a lens that they bring to the life of Muhammad. They're thinking in questions of the spread of territory, uh, the consolidation of power. Um, Of course, colonialism is in its heyday, and so who should rule over whom uh, and how should that be accomplished is something people are thinking about. And we see that this is not simply a preoccupation of European biographers, but becomes really central to the way that Muslims then begin to write about Muhammad. And so we have Sayyid Amir Ali, for instance, uh, who writes The Spirit of Islam, um, a book about Muhammad, and writes an earlier version of this as well. And he talks about Muhammad in terms of what he does, what he accomplishes, and then also situates him in this pantheon of founders of religions. So uh, I'll read you an excerpt from this book. It's, it's about a hierarchy and it's about religions and it's about how does Muhammad stack up really a kind of comparative assessment. In this fact, the fact of the whole work being achieved in his lifetime lies his distinctive superiority over the prophets, sages, and philosophers of other times and countries. Jesus, Moses, Zoroaster, the Buddha, Plato, all had their notions of realms of God, their republics, their ideas, through which degraded humanity was to be elevated into a new moral life. 
all had departed from this world with their aspirations unfulfilled, their bright visions unrealized, or had bequeathed the task of elevating their fellow men to sanguinary disciples or monarch pupils. It was reserved for Muhammad to fulfill his mission and that of his predecessors. It was reserved for him alone to see accomplished the work of amelioration. This is a portrait of Muhammad that would be, I suspect, unrecognizable to many people writing, reading in the 10th or 11th or 12th century. At the same time, I don't want to draw too sharp a distinction, uh, polemics about the relative merits of various prophetic figures uh, have been very much a part of Muslim religious thought and, and apologetics for centuries, for more than a millennium, and ways in which, for instance, the story of the prophet's night journey and ascension was told were very carefully structured to position Muhammad uh, in ways that rendered him superior to, at least in some degree, other prophetic figures. Also during this period, we have an increased interest interest in Muhammad's network of relationships and writing about how he relates to his successors, his companions, his his family. Um, And of course, probably foremost among this is his first wife, uh, Khadija, can you can you talk about how she's portrayed in biographies? In what kind of ways is she contextualized? What kind of concerns arise in relation to her narrative in these biographies? The way in which Khadija uh, becomes increasingly central to biographies of Muhammad was one of the most striking things that I discovered. Um, Now, of course, she shows up in the early biographies. There's a tremendous amount of respect for her. Uh, She's associated with crucial turning points in Muhammad's life, right? Marriage, obviously, becoming a father, his prophetic commission. uh, And then in the wake of her death, along with Abu Talib's death, uh, the departure from Mecca to Medina. Um, And and these linkages are made in the early sources. However, um, if you look at other sources for Muhammad's life, the Hadith and so forth, she really doesn't figure nearly as much as his later wives, in part because much of what they're talking about in terms of his prophetic mission really transpires after her death in Medina. And so when Muhammad's marriages as marriages are talked about, um, it's really his later polygynous marriages that get most of the attention. And by marriages as marriages, I don't actually mean that because there isn't a sort of defined thing in the earlier biographies that that's about sort of who Muhammad was as a husband. That's a modern thing. Um, but Khadija is sort of important and respected and yet not actually all that central to the narrative. Whereas uh, once we start getting to medieval biographies and then early modern biographies by Westerners, Khadija becomes an important flashpoint for the criticism of Muhammad that he was ambitious, that he married her to take advantage of her social prominence and her wealth to use her in order to gain power. Um, Now, what happens in between, say, the 16th 
the 17th, 18th century and the 19th century, where this particular model of biography is crystallizing, is we get a shift from focusing on Muhammad's lustfulness, his debauchery to and, and ambition too, which is also a bad thing, to a focus on the oppression of women and to Muhammad's polygyny as particularly problematic. What begins to happen is instead of seeing Muhammad's marriage with Khadija as problematic because of his ambition and then his later marriages as problematic because of his debauchery, what we get is Muhammad's marriage to Khadija as is a certain respect sort of exemplary. He marries her, he's monogamous, they have children, it's all well and good. And then he gets drunk on power and his lust for power overshadows, you know, whatever good qualities had manifested earlier on and he begins accumulating all of these other wives. And so this goes along with a way of thinking about Muhammad's career in which he's better and more acceptable when he's in Mecca. And then when he moves to Medina and gains governance of the community, um, he comes to be perceived as abusing power. And, and so Khadija becomes the good marriage and the later marriages become the bad marriages. Um, now, when Muslim biographers take this up, uh, they do a number of different things with it. Um, but one of the things that they do is they take up this praise of Khadija and of the marriage to Khadija and then use this as a centerpiece for talking about how wonderful Muhammad is and how wonderful he was as a husband and, and put the focus there as opposed to on the later marriages as a kind of rhetorical switching device. And very often... They will quote praise for Muhammad's marriage to Khadija from these other from these uh, authors with whom they are otherwise in dispute or or at the very least uh, kind of in competition. Listeners will also likely know that Aisha becomes a very um, polarizing yes. figure, and here you have a, a long discussion of her, both uh, you know briefly from. The earlier accounts, um, but also a, a wide swath of literature from Muslims and non-Muslims today. Can you talk a little bit about what concerns, questions arise in relation to Aisha? Um, when does her age become an issue, and and to who, um, and and how her Muhammad and Aisha's marriage is debated? There's so much to say about this question. <laughs> <laughs> read the book, read the book. Read the um, book, right? You know, it's fascinating and troubling and um, and really, really interesting the ways in which something that for early modern European authors, you know, Aisha is six at marriage and she's, one author says, a full eight years old when the marriage is consummated. Um <laughs> You know, this is for them, this is exotic, this is erotic, it's this uh, torrid zone or, or eastern climes where girls mature earlier and, you know, men age gracefully and I forget what one of them writes, it's something like, it is given to man alone to arrive at a green old age. Um, I've mangled the quotation somewhat, but that's the gist of it. And so it's not surprising that 
men marry younger girls, but also that they keep taking additional wives, right, if they're not prevented from doing so by religion because, well, you know, their first wives got old and who wants that, right? This notion of youth and youthfulness as attractive um, has has emerged this particular time. And, and so, you know, of course, this is not something that the contemporary United States is entirely immune to. Um, someone recently did a chart showing how the age of certain Hollywood leading men has kind of shot up and, and the age of their leading women, you know, hasn't by all that much. Um, and, and the gaps just get larger and larger. Um, but for, say, Humphrey Prideaux writing in 1697, the true nature of imposture fully displayed in the life of Muhammad, Aisha's age doesn't bother him at all, right? What bothers him is that he's contracting this marriage to try to cement this alliance with Abu Bakr because that shows this ambition that he has, and he's doing all of this in a very calculated way to perpetrate this fraud. By the time we get to Washington Irving, in the mid-19th century, um, we are seeing, again, this preoccupation with Eastern climes and all of this, but then also this sort of notion that Aisha was um, sort of an emotional respite for the prophet from the stresses of life, right, um, that she became this kind of companion for him. So there's all this stuff going on um, by... The early 20th century, you're getting these sort of notes of condemnation, but but scattered, not a big deal, right? Um, D.S. Margoliath, for instance, talks about how Aisha is young and she gets dragged from her swing and her toys, right, when they marry. Um, details selected from the Hadith, but again, these don't become the centerpiece of a project of condemnation by the 70s and 80s, people are referring more to it, feeling like it's something they need to address. Um, but it's really only in, I would say, the 20 years sort of spanning the turn of the millennium that this becomes the issue, that, that pedophilia is a term that begins to be bandied about. Um, and particularly in the U.S., this happens uh, not just after um, 2001, but after the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal, right? Um, and one of the things that I note in the book is that there's a very long history of Protestant anti-Catholic sentiment and anti-Muslim sentiment being linked. And I wonder if that's part of what's happening also here. Um, and one of the ways that you can track this change in attention to Aisha's age is actually to look at how translations happen. So, you know, Washington Irving doesn't think this is a problem at all when he's writing in the 1860s. A hundred years later, an Arabic translation of his biography is published in Egypt, and the Egyptian translator adds a note that, you know, the first age is the age of betrothal, and here's this other thing. So it's just something that completely went without saying um, now is a problem and has to be addressed in some fashion or another. Um, even more so, Mohammed Hussein Haeckel's biography of Mohammed, um, which was published in the 1930s in Egypt, uh, only gets translated into English um, quite a number of decades later. And when that gets translated, uh, Haeckel has used in three different places 
three different ages for Aisha's age when the marriage is consummated. Um, you know, he talks about the marriage at this age and then the consummation at this other age. You know, so he says six and nine, and then he says uh, nine and eleven, and then I don't remember. I don't have it exactly in front of me, uh, but exactly, you know, the, the other age ends up being eleven. In the English translation. Uh, the idea that this first thing was a marriage drops out and it becomes betrothal. And then um, he says things like affianced or engaged. And then where Haeckel in Arabic talks about consummation, his translator simply has marriage. Um, so here we have, well, I can give you the, the precise, the, the most egregious of the shifts. So we have uh, since she was still a child of seven years of age, Muhammad contracted a marriage to her but did not consummate it until two years later when she had turned nine. And the English translation of this becomes, since she was still too young to marry, the engagement was announced, but the marriage was postponed for three more years until Aisha had reached the age of 11. So this translation omits the terms that Heichel uses, um, gives no actual word for engagement, which is a term completely not present in the original, adds in the number 11 and says three more years rather than the original two years passed before the marriage, when the original has the consummation, took place. So it's a way of just completely sidelining this uh, this issue of sex. Um, and he makes similar changes in the translation to other kinds of passages. Um, so what we have is just a complete shift in what is considered an acceptable thing to say um, and, and also a really dramatic shift in audience. Um, and of course, we also have the translator making the choice to harmonize the numbers that are given in the text. Uh, Haeckel wrote the book originally as a series of articles and they were published piecemeal. Uh, when he put them into a book, he didn't go back and edit for internal consistency. So one could charitably make the argument that the translator is simply harmonizing for the sake of consistency. Um, it's, uh, it's certainly interesting, the very different overall effect that one gets. Keisha, you're right. The, there's tons of stuff we don't have time to get into, and this is a really rich book. I hope listeners will uh, grab a copy. Um, but I'm sure they're interested to hear about what you're working on now. So could you give us a little taste of projects you have in the works, publications that might be coming out soon? So in 2006, I published my first book, um, Sexual Ethics and Islam. And a 10th anniversary edition of the book is coming out early next year. Um, and it's essentially the same material. I didn't go back and succumb to the tendency to revise the chapters themselves. Um, but what I did do is add about 20,000 words of new material. And so there's a new preface, there's a new afterword, and there is a, a coda to each of the chapters that deals with allied kinds of questions that deals with places where I think the scholarship has really moved forward, for instance, on uh, interpretation of the Quran. I think it's a tremendous amount more than there was a decade ago, uh, more to say things about uh, the chapter on slavery and slave concubinage. Obviously, um, you know, this is a topical 
issue now. And so I've said a little bit more about how things are being discussed and debated today. Um, so that's forthcoming. Uh, and the other thing that I'm working on right now is a book for the classroom uh, on women in Muslim traditions for a series on women in world religions. And the idea is uh, to provide, even though I'm really skeptical of the idea about books about women in Islam, because I think it's a kind of impossible category, um, nonetheless, to a certain extent, that's the category we're living with right now. The idea is to provide a survey uh, that that respects um, the need to make things intelligible for beginners encountering this material for the first time in a women in religion survey or in an intro to Islam class, um, but nonetheless doesn't simply rely on here are the five pillars, here's the Middle East, and let's have a sidebar about Shiism, and let's have a sidebar about Indonesia, uh, but really tries to use diversity within the worldwide Muslim population and diversity theological and legal um, as a lens through which to explore what uh, Islam is in many of its manifestations. Sounds great. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk about this wonderful book and good luck on your, your future one. Thanks very much, Christian. I'll be back to talk about it. <laughs> Sounds good. That was my conversation with Keisha Ali about her great new book, The Lives of Muhammad, published by Harvard University Press in 2014. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.